How are you guys doing this morning? Doing well? Feeling good? And praise God for new life, uh, both spiritual and what we saw in baptism um, and physical. Uh, What we've celebrated all year is 2009 has been Redemption Hill's year of the baby um, and the great baby bonanza that started at the beginning of the year and will carry on, I think, until about the end of December when at least the last one that we know of is due to be born. Um, this past week, uh, Zach and Greta Bannister welcomed baby Psalm Abigail, uh, Adelaide, Psalm Adelaide um, to this world on Thursday, I think. Is Thursday right? Thursday right? Wednesday? Thursday? Wednesday? Wednesday? Um, they're all doing well. Um, everybody's enjoying their time together, and uh, hopefully we'll see them around pretty soon. But uh, I think we've got one more in the queue. Uh, I think the clinches are, are our last ones coming around the corner. I don't know how many... We've had so far this year, um, but don't, don't let this opportunity of Thanksgiving pass you by. Uh, while we're coming up on the holidays in the next few weeks, and we'll talk more of this, about more of this as we get into the month of November, uh, but don't let the opportunity to thank God for his unending and unceasing blessing upon us to pass you by. Uh, If you just take a moment to think about what he has done in this one thing of bringing these children into this church family and into the lives and families of those who have had them, if you just think that I think we've gone over 12 or 13 babies this year, maybe more than that, I'm not really sure, all wonderfully well-made, all perfectly formed all coming into this life with moms and dads and families ready to embrace them uh, with their health and their life intact. Uh, I don't know if you, if you know the, the normal national or global statistics, but in a church this size or with people this size with that many children, that's an unbelievable gift. That's an amazing gift. Um, God has been unbelievably faithful to us in that. So uh, as we go up on the season, don't let little things like that pass you by as an opportunity to be thankful to God for who he is, what he has done, and the mercy and the grace that he's shown us. And, and as you see these little ones around here, it's hard to miss them. I, I mean, there's just so many. Uh, as you see them and you see their parents, give them a hug and, and continue to pray for them as they make the transition, uh, either being the first child or being the eighth child. Uh, there's transitions in the home. And so continue to pray for these families who are, are taking new steps and learning new things with these kids and, and continue to thank God. Uh, for the mercy and the blessing that he has shown us in that. So um, we are in the last week of the series that we have been in called In This City for the Nations, where we've been taking some time, five or six weeks this week, I think, to talk about the church, to talk about the church, talk about the people of God who've been brought together and are being transformed by the power of God to reflect the image and the character of God in Christ himself, that we would live a particular way in the place where he has put us that would reflect his glory and his greatness to a world that is lost and on the way to spending an eternity apart from him. And he has purpose to work through his people to reflect his greatness and glory to this world. And that's what the church is, and that's what the church is about. And we've taken five, coming up on six weeks, to talk about what that looks like and how Scripture plays that out and how that makes a difference and how we understand who we are and what we're called to do and what we're called to be. So as we wrap up what we've been talking about this week, I'm going to wrap it up by going backwards. And some people love this, some people can't stand it, but I'm going to wrap up by going backwards and we're going to take two steps back and talk about what we've seen throughout this series and what God has said and then how it moves forward and how it plays itself out in the last couple of things that we're going to talk about. But we started this entire series back in the, in the first week talking about how from the very beginning, 
From, from the very beginning, the first couple of pages of the Bible, God's plan and God's purpose for his name to be made great, for his glory to be made known, for his praises to be reflected by his people has been his plan from the beginning and it's never changed. And from week one, we started in Genesis and we walked through the story of the Old Testament, ultimately, ultimately climaxing in the, in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, showing how God has been purposed from the beginning to make a name for himself through the praises of his people. And though we sin, though we turn, though we rebel, though we disregard him, though we have separated ourselves from him by our own desires, he has not changed his plan, he has not changed his purpose, and he has not changed his mission to make us into the likeness of his son that we would reflect his glory through our lives and in our desires and in our passions. And we talked about how God took a people like us and reconciled us to himself, redeeming us and setting us free from the bondages that we have to ourselves, that hold us enslaved to our own desires and to our own passions. And he set us free to love him. He set us free to worship him. He set us free to be satisfied in him. That as we grow and are cultivated and transformed into the likeness of Christ, as our hearts begin to beat with the same passions that his beat with, as, as we begin to live with the same purposes and agendas that he has, he is made great. As our lives are lived to reflect his glory, he's, his name is made great. So from the very beginning, that has been God's purpose and that has been God's, God's plan, that we would celebrate his greatness in his loving of us, his redemption of us, his reconciling of himself towards us. And through our lives, that satisfaction in who he is for us would begin to change people. Our lives would be broken open in front of people and the gospel and the goodness of who God is and how it's changed, how we live, will begin to pour out and people will see a hope, a joy, a purpose, a passion in us that they desire, that they chase, that they pursue within their life that they can never seek to find. And God has made it such that as that breaks out of our lives, people are drawn towards us that we could point them to him. And we talked about that and what God's purpose was from the very beginning. And then we went in to look at how as God saves us and calls us to himself and transforms us and redeems us, that we would live a life that reflects his glory. He didn't set us apart to do that all by ourselves. But that as he saved us and as he called us to himself and as he adopted us into his family and calls us sons and daughters of the most high God, as he calls us heirs with Christ himself, he brings us into a family. That God has not saved us and rescued us and redeemed us to figure this thing out all by ourselves, but part of what it means to be the church is to be a family. People who are learning to love, people who are learning to sacrifice, people who are learning to live a life that reflects the purposes and the plans of God amongst one another. He didn't leave us alone. He gave us his people and he gave us himself. He, he calls us to live as a family. And, and even more than that, he calls this family to, to serve one another and to love one another and to live with one another in a particular way. He says, as ambassadors of the gospel, of the message of redemption, that his church is not just a family that he's brought together to live together, but we are sent out by God to the places that he has put us in, the cities that we find ourselves in, the neighborhoods we find ourselves in, and the jobs we find ourselves in, to be ambassadors for this good news, this message of the gospel. That God has shaped us and called us and is changing us, and as we're conformed in his image, we take on his likeness and we, his, our heart beats with the same passions and agenda that his heart beats with. And as we begin to live, we begin to see our lives not, not as to be lived for ourselves, 
that we begin to wrestle with the, the selfishness and the self-centeredness in our soul and the gospel begins to, to make a new way with new passions in our hearts and we find ourselves called by God to live as ambassadors, those who represent his plans and, and his agenda and slowly but surely we begin to think about our life in terms of not what will bring us the most satisfaction, what will bring us the most passion and what will get us the most in a particular situation. We begin to think what what best represents the, the passions and the plans of the king in this situation? And the gospel does work in our desires to exalt ourselves above God himself and realize that he has called us to be ambassadors as a people, family, living, loving, ambassadors, going, living, and then ultimately servants. The church is a collection of people who live as a family, who are sent as ambassadors, and who live as servants, sacrificing their lives and their desires for the betterment of others, for the sake of the gospel and the place that he has sent them. And so we spent time, we won't rehearse all of it, talking about God's plan from the beginning to reflect his glory through his people and his plan to redeem his people and reconcile his people so that his people can live the life that he created them to live. And then he brings them together to be the church, to live as family, to be sent as ambassadors and to love and to serve as servants. And so we began to talk then, what does this look like here? If that's God's plan, if that's God's purpose, if that's what God has done through the gospel for his people to reflect his glory from the beginning until the end, what does that look like here? And we began to unpack this statement, this uh, sentence, and I don't know how grammatically correct it is. If you, I guess you can call it a sentence. Um, but this, this statement that we talk about a lot here where we've tried to take what God has said his plan for the church is and what God has said his vision for his people is and how God has planned for his people to accomplish that vision. We've tried to consolidate that down and we started to talk about the fact that at this church, the way we understand who we are because of what God has done, we like to say that we exist, Redemption Hill exists to bring God glory through cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people that plant churches which transform communities. And so we began to talk about that. We began to talk about the fact that when we say we exist to bring God glory, all we are doing is agreeing with God's vision for his people from the very beginning, the great big E on the I chart, that all that we do and all that we hope to be are people who live lives that in everything that we do reflect his glory. It's a statement of massive intentionality to actually say that whatever you do, that you exist your reason for being, your existence, is to live in such a way that brings glory to someone else, to bring, that brings glory to God. And that was his plan for the church from the very beginning. So all we're doing when we say we exist to bring God glory is agreeing with God's vision for the church. We're not trying to come up with anything different, anything special, or anything creative. We're simply saying this is what God says his vision for the church is, so this is what our vision for the church is. But how do you actually do that in a culture that's so dark and, and so deceived as the world that we actually live in? How do we actually become people who live with this unbelievably massive intentionality, who see their purpose in everything that they do? Like Paul said, whatever you, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How do we actually become a people who become transformed into understanding that all that we do is to bring God glory and live with that intentionality? Well, that's where we started looking last week at Matthew chapter 28, where God said, this is who my people are supposed to be, and here's how I'm going to tell you you get there. Here's how that actually happens. Here's how that actually takes place. 
and we looked at God's commission to his church, the, the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, and we saw the way that we become people who, who bring God glory through all that we do, who exist to bring God glory, is through the process of cultivating the soul. We talked about last week how we say around here that we, we exist to bring him glory, and the way that we do that is through the process of cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. And that's, that's nothing more than the process of what God calls making disciples, cultivating the soul to reflect the character of Christ. And what was the character of Christ if it wasn't gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded? So we talk about the mission of our church, the mission of Redemption Hill, is being the same as God's mission for his church, and that's to cultivate the soul to reflect the character of Christ, to make disciples, to make those whose lives are being transformed into the image of Christ, that they live their life and everything with that they do with a purpose and intentionality to bring God glory through the way that they live. That was his vision for the church. That was his mission for the church. That's how we understand our lives to be shaped and to be formed and our activities to be carried out. That's who we are. It's, it's really that simple. We exist to bring God glory through cultivating the soul to reflect the character of Christ. Through cultivating gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people. We simply want to be a people who bring God glory in everything that we do. And the way that we pursue that vision is through making disciples, through cultivating the soul. And so this week, that's where we've been. Was that a good enough wrap-up? Good? All right, cool. That was probably the fastest wrap-up I've ever given you. Now we're going to unpack the the last piece. We're just going to briefly talk through this last piece because... As you survey scripture and you, and you read the New Testament and you begin to actually read the entire Bible, it's the plan that's laid out throughout the entire scripture and it comes to an unbelievable focus and head in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, which is the institution of the church and the expansion of the gospel through the church throughout the land. You begin to see that when people's lives begin to collide with the gospel, when, when Jesus begins to take root and shape in people's souls and the cultivation process begins and the, the process of bringing hearts to a gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded life begins in someone's soul or inner community, one thing that begins to happen, as you see in Scripture, is that churches begin to be formed. And as churches begin to be formed, communities begin to be transformed. And so when we talk about the fact that we exist to to bring God glory through cultivating gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people that plant churches and transform communities, that's just the scriptural output of what it means and what happens when we center our passion and center our purpose on God's mission to make disciples. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. And as you're heading to the book of Acts, I'll, I want to give you a few thoughts or observations on this whole idea of planting churches. First observation, first idea, first clarification Our our mission as a church, the mission that God has given his church, the mission that we unpacked last week and I've probably said eight times so far this morning, is not to plant churches. As you read Matthew 28 like we did last week and God's commission to his church to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that he has commanded, all that Jesus has commanded, the mission of the church was to make disciples, not baptize or teach. And when we talk about why we exist, we exist to bring God glory, and we do that through cultivating the soul. Our mission is simply not to plant churches, it's to cultivate disciples. 
It's to cultivate gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. That's why we exist. That's what we're here to do. Now, the natural process, the natural outflow, the natural fruit that begins to occur when the church joins God on his mission to cultivate souls, to proclaim the gospel that people would be transformed, is that churches begin to be formed wherever the gospel begins to take root and begins to be preached. When the message of, of the gospel begins to do its work in the life of a man or a woman or in a family or, or in a city. What we began to see last week and what you begin to see happen is, and what we celebrated in the video this week is that our lives are then to take on the identities and, and the agendas of, of Christ. And if what is baptism, we talked about last week, if it isn't the public identification with the person of Christ, if it's not dying to an old set of values and, and dying to an old way of life and dying to an old community and rising in newness of life to a new heart, to a new set of passions, to a new set of values and to a new community. So as the gospel is proclaimed through our life, as we live as ambassadors in the place that God sends us, and the gospel begins to collide with people's souls, and it begins to do work in their hearts, and the process of cultivation begins, and they begin to be transformed by this message of good news through Jesus, they become baptized, and their old way of life is buried, and they're rising to a new way of life, but they're rising to an absolutely new community. We talked about it in the beginning of the series, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christianity is that it is not a, a religion that leaves us to ourself or a philosophy that leaves us to ourself or a philosophy or an idea that leaves us to a particular set of things that we have to do to earn a, a particular favor or merit before God. But it, and when we are transformed by the gospel, we are brought into an absolutely new community and it's that community of the church where the process of cultivation takes place. We talked about last week where we we learn what God has called us to do and we learn what God has done for us and we learn how the gospel transforms the way that we understand how we live and how we work and how we love and how we understand the life that God has given to us. And it's together as a people that we begin the process of our souls being transformed into the likeness and the character of Christ. And so when the gospel would go forward and people would be baptized, they would be brought into a new community and that new community was the church. And so wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel takes root, churches begin to be formed. That's just the story of the New Testament. If you've got the book of Acts opened up to you, let me walk you through, I'll show you. And then I want to look at one particular church that I like and that I think has a lot of similarities to us here in Richmond. You begin to see in the book of Acts, the, the second part of the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and Acts is the continuation of what God had begun in the book of Luke and the Gospels. And, and so the book of Acts starts with the ascension of Christ and Christ having come back to his disciples and, and reappeared to them. And in Acts chapter 1-8, this is what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 2, you see that God fulfills his promise to be with his people. And we have what we call Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, is poured out upon the church. And the church is empowered by God to do the very thing that God called them to go to, to do, to go and to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations, to be sent out and to be on the mission of God, transformed by the message of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. You see that begin to happen in, in chapter 2. And 
I love this. Chapter 2, verses, uh, where is it? Verse 47, I think. As the Holy Spirit was poured out and the 120 that were there waiting to go reach the entire world with the gospel has been transformed and empowered. And now, as they live and as they love and as they serve and as they devote themselves to the teaching, as they become the church gathered, devoting themselves to the message of the gospel and to love and service of one another, 2 verse 47 says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And as they begin to continue to devote themselves to one another, to be the church, to devote themselves to the gospel, to devote themselves to service, to devote themselves to understanding the teaching, the story continues. And you get into chapter 4, verse 4, that says, but many of those who were in Jerusalem had heard the word that was being taught, and they believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So God told the church in Acts 1, 120 people, that they were to be his witnesses throughout the entire earth, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that they were to go and be his ambassadors, preaching the message of the gospel at 120 people. Unbelievable task. And that where they go, people's lives would be transformed. But then in chapter 2, he sends his spirit and he empowers them for the task. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and the church devotes themselves to the teaching of the gospel, to the love and service of one another. They're a family devoting themselves to what God has said and what God has called them to do. And the entire city of Jerusalem is being transformed, and people are being added daily. And in a couple of chapters, that 120 has now grown to 5,000. And in just a couple of chapters, what you see is a great persecution breaks in in Jerusalem upon the church. And so the church that was told to go and to be the ambassadors of the gospel to the ends of the earth is still stagnated in Jerusalem. They're growing. They've received power. They're growing in number, but they're not going anywhere. The first part of the commission that we looked at last week was to go, and they're staying. So a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem upon the church in, in Acts chapter 8. And from Acts chapter 8, you see what had been birthed in Jerusalem and what had grown in Jerusalem. The church that had been empowered there is now sent out. And you begin to see the gospel being taken from city to city, going from town to town, place to place. And everywhere they would go and they would preach the gospel. And the gospel would take root. People would be added. People would be baptized. And churches would be formed because the church, the people of God being changed by the power of God is the place where we become transformed into the likeness and the image of God. As we love one another and serve one another. And you get the stories of, uh, of cities all throughout the, the Mediterranean being changed and the gospel taking root. And you get to this place in Acts chapter 11 in this town of Antioch where the church in Jerusalem had, 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 had commissioned people to go and the gospel had taken place and a church had formed. And this great church in Antioch looks at the apostle Paul who at one time was Saul who was persecuting the church and trying to destroy it in its early days who's now been saved by God and transformed by God. This church in Antioch looks at this former persecutor of the church and recognizes the call of God on his life to go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And so they send him to go as a missionary to the lost, to people, to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel, to see churches formed, and to see lives transformed. And you get over to Acts chapter 16, which is where I actually wanted to go. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas and, and Luke, you'll see, have been, have been sent by the church to go and to preach. And Acts chapter 16, verse 11, says, So setting sail from Traus, we made a direct voyage to another place, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. 
And so what we see is as the gospel begins to grow and take shape and lives begin to transform, churches begin to spring up, and we're about to meet a church in Philippi in the central town of an area called Macedonia that I really think resembles a lot of what we face here and, and what we can hope to see ex- and expect to see transformed and become a reality in this city is the gospel begins to take root and, and begins to, to cultivate a distinctive life amongst God's people. And you meet a few people who are similar, I think, to the people here in Richmond. Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And so we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the town of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods and was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you see the gospel going forward through Paul and you see it colliding with this woman named Lydia who the Bible says was a worshiper of God or some of your Bibles may say a God-fearer and that she had come to understand from an outside perspective, not from a Jewish background, who this God that the Jewish people was, who, who, who that God was that they proclaimed. She began to serve him, but she had never heard of Jesus. And so Paul goes to the city and he goes to this place of prayer where these women are and he begins to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection and God opens the heart of this woman named Lydia and he begins to transform her and she gets baptized. And as she gets baptized, she gets brought into a new community. But where is that community in a town that's never heard the good news of the, of the, of the gospel? A church begins to be formed. A new community begins to take place. And Paul started and God sent him to this businesswoman in Philippi. This woman who knew something of God but had never heard the good news of Jesus. And the beginning of this church in this town was with a woman named Lydia. But God had other plans for this little church to take place for these people. And you get verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, that's, you should don't skip that. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And so you've got Paul and Silas and Luke going to this town to preach the gospel. And Paul and Silas and Luke are led by God to a place of prayer where they meet a businesswoman. And as they preach the good news of Jesus, God opens the heart of this businesswoman named Lydia and she receives Christ as her savior. The cultivation process has begun. Her heart is being transformed. She is baptized and she is brought into this new community that Paul and Silas and Luke have begun. This church that's there and you can expect that she began to follow and began to attach herself to Paul and the rest that were with him and they go to the place of prayer the next day and they come across this woman. This woman who is exploited, this woman who is enslaved, this woman who is being taken advantage of by other people to their own gain. And they come and she's being harassed by demons and then Paul speaks the name of Jesus and this woman is set free. There are more Lydia's in this city 
than I can imagine. And there are more women and men like this servant woman being exploited, being taken advantage of, held in bondage by people in this city seeking their own gain and their own exploitation of other people. God has sent his people, his church, to cities just like Philippi and just like this to preach the gospel and to live in such a way that the freedom of the good news of Jesus Christ takes root. And women like Lydia, businesswomen like Lydia, businessmen like Lydia are transformed. Men and women like this servant girl who are oppressed, who are exploited, who are in bondage, are transformed. But he's not done either. God has more plans for this very little church plant. When you think about what you want when you plant a church, you don't think about these guys. But Paul had something else in mind. As he spoke to that slave girl and, and she was transformed, her owners got mad because now their opportunity for making money was gone. They used this woman and her demonic gifts to make money as they exploited her for their own means, but now God has saved her and rescued her, and so their chance of, of gain is now gone, and so they're mad. The gospel is not only taking root and transforming people, but the community is changing. These businessmen are no longer able to make their money off this girl, so they get mad. And it gets Paul and Silas in a lot of trouble, and ultimately it gets them thrown in jail. And that's where we meet God's next church attendee. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so great that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now when the jailer awoke and he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. And then he brought them up to his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along, uh, he, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You've got Lydia the businesswoman. You've got the servant girl who's been exploited and enslaved and used for gain by people of the city. And then you've got this Philippian jailer. This city employee, this government employee, this man who has come because of his position, at least from an upper middle class aristocratic Roman background, and he gets saved by watching Paul and Silas' worship of God that comes from their involvement with this slave girl. He gets saved as they see the power of God work through Paul and Silas in the life of this enslaved and exploited girl and then their worship of God in the midst of the difficult circumstances that they found themselves in and the rescue of God amidst such great struggle. This is what our city is longing to see. Richmond, Virginia is full of Lydia's. It's full of slave girls. It's full of aristocratic people who are caught up in the historical culture of this place who are dying to see an accurate and authentic representation and demonstration of the proclamation that the church has made in the city since its founding. This city is not devoid of churches. One of the first things that was founded in this city was a church. What this city is longing for is a demonstration of what's been proclaimed throughout the history of this city. 
There has not been a, an accurate proclamation of this gospel and a demonstration to go along with it in this city consistently since the time it was founded. When the gospel takes root, when the good news of who God is for us takes root and begins to work itself through a life, people get transformed. And in the process, churches get established. Churches, communities, where the process of cultivation can take place, get put in place. Now listen to this. Let me give you some ideas and some, and some numbers about church planting. Right now, in, in this country, and then we'll narrow it down to Richmond, there are 195 million non-churched people in America. Lydia's, slave girls, Jailers, making America one of the top four largest unreached nations in the world. In spite of the rise of what we call megachurches, no county in America has a greater church population than it did 10 years ago. During the last 10 years, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations declined by 9.9%, while the national population increased by 11.7%. And each year, 3,500 to 4,000 churches close their doors forever. Yet only as many as 1,127 new churches are started on average. That's our country. God's plan from the very beginning has been to make a people who would reflect his glory through the lives they live, who we bring together as a community that he called the church. And in this city, if that's the national average, in this city, in Richmond, Virginia, half of the greater Richmond population self-admittedly has no religious affiliation. In the last census that was done in 2000, when the reports came out in 2002, half of the greater population of greater Richmond self-admittedly says we have no religious affiliation. Now, that is not Protestant, evangelical, or Christian, or whatever term you have. That's religious affiliation, period, no matter what religion. If you take out of that 50%, those who do not believe in Christ, you're down to about a quarter of the population of Greater Richmond that actually believes in Jesus and has some type of self-admitted affiliation with the church. So that leaves three quarters of the population of Greater Richmond that either self-admittedly has no religious affiliation or has a religious affiliation that denies Jesus as the only way to God and the only way for transformation and peace and reconciliation. This is the city that God has sent us into to be a family that reflect his glory, to be ambassadors who live for his name's sake, to be servants who serve one another and serve the city out of the good news and out of the grace that God has shown us in our lives. This city of just over one million people, where three quarters roughly of that one million have no vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ is expected to grow to 1.3 million by 2020. If we were to establish churches just to keep up with the expected growth of the city, we would have to plant almost 500 churches of 500 people just to take care of the growth that's expected in the city, not the three quarters that are already here who don't know who Jesus is. That's the task in front of us. And so what do we do? Do we just go plant churches? The quick answer is yes, but... That's not really the whole picture. You see, if we look at the statistics and say, well, then we need to go plant churches, here's the problem. 
We'll be tempted to go and to do something that we depend upon ourselves to to achieve and depend upon ourselves to find success in and lean upon our own capacities to do particular things. But here's something the Apostle Paul said in the process of the gospel going forward. when When he wrote to the church in Colossae, he said this, I rejoice to find that the gospel is at work amongst you just as it is throughout the entire earth. The gospel is doing its work in the city and across the world. The gospel is already at work in Richmond, Virginia, in this neighborhood, and in the neighborhoods throughout this city. The gospel is already at work in this state and in this country and around the world. We go and we plant churches with the confidence that the gospel is at work in people. Just as Paul went to Philippi with the confidence that God was at work in that place and God brought him to people that he was already doing a work in and God opened Lydia's eyes in the name of Jesus released that woman from imprisonment and enslavement and demonic oppression and God shook the jail and released Paul and brought that jailer to his knees to repent and believe in Jesus. The gospel is at work. God is at work. It is producing fruit. It is growing and we plant churches to take care of the gospel fruit that God is producing in this city. That's what he's called us to do. And as we live as a church, as a family, as ambassadors, as servants, living to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would do all that we do in our life to reflect his glory, churches get established as the gospel begins to bear fruit in those situations. So God has called us, very simply, to to cultivate gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. And as we focus on God's mission that he has called us to, and we rely on God's power and God's wisdom and God's capacity to enable us to do what he's called us to do, the expectation is that churches would be established. That all throughout this city, that all throughout the state, that all throughout the nations, churches, communities would be established. Where together people are being transformed, being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, the second thing, the expectation that as disciples are made and souls are cultivated and churches are planted to extend the growth of the gospel in that place, the second expectation is that communities would be transformed. That the places where people are living, the places where people are breathing, the places where families are established, the places where we do life would be transformed because of the work of the gospel in our lives and the establishment of gospel communities or churches in those places. Listen to this. Globally, let me just give you an idea of the need for transformation. More than 1.5 billion people around the world live on less than a dollar a day. More than 1 billion people don't have access to clean water. And every year, 6 million children globally die from malnutrition before their fifth birthday. More than 800 million people go to bed hungry every day. 300 million are children. Of the 300 million children, Only 8% are victims of famine or other emergency situations. More than 90% are suffering long-term malnourishment and micronutrient deficiency. Here's a global picture for you. A woman right now living in sub-Saharan Africa has a 1 in 16 chance of dying in pregnancy. This compares with a 1 in 3,900 risk for a woman in North America. In Richmond, in our city, in this place that God has called us to, to pursue the gospel here, to make disciples here, to see churches planted here and communities transformed here, 25% of greater Richmond lives below the poverty level. 35% of those living below the poverty level are kids. 
And that's just one slice. We don't have time to go into all the aspects of of darkness and, and loss that plague not only the world, but this city. God has called us to be about his purpose of cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. And as people would gather and would do the work of cultivation, churches would be established and churches that are being established and transformed by God's grace would recognize their inability. They would recognize their need. They would recognize their desperation. They would recognize the dependence upon God and the desperate need of the world around them for God. And they would begin to serve and live in a way that brings him glory and begins to meet the needs of the community around them. Nothing promotes the peace and the health of the city like the spread of the gospel. The gospel transforms both individuals and it reweaves the fabric of the whole neighborhood. Nothing will move the church. Nothing will move individual Christians to serve, to sacrifice, and to live in a way that brings transformation not only to their lives but to their community like the gospel does. And so we say what we are about is cultivating gospel-centered people. The reason I, I showed you this church in Philippi that was birthed through Paul's ministry, made up of people just like the people that make up this city, is because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you get a picture of how the gospel begins to work its way through a church like this and how churches that are planted from people that are being transformed begin to have an impact and a care for the needs around them. And you don't have to go there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church to encourage them to give money to the poor church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is going through a struggle. They're, they're losing people. There's a persecution on the church. And so Paul motivates the church in Corinth, which is a bigger, more metropolitan city, to give money to the church in Jerusalem. And he motivates them by describing what God had done in this church in Philippi. And so this church that was started by this businesswoman who came to Christ and this oppressed and exploited servant girl that was absolutely transformed by the name of Jesus and this jailer, this government official who, who bowed his knees to Jesus and confessed and repented and they were gathered together in the church community in Philippi, Paul encourages this wealthy church to give to a poor church by what God has done by this little church in Philippi made up of all these diverse people who the gospel is changing and conforming and he says this, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia, that's Philippi, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us." Severe tests of affliction, extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people. Cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. Planting gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people who understand the call of God and the purpose of God and transform communities by the grace of God. That's what you see in Scripture. 
It's the story of Scripture. It's the story of the book of Acts. Disciples are made. Churches are planted by the power and the grace of God. And new and struggling churches, just like this one, just like ours, just like churches all across this place, are set free from the middle class, dominant worldview and set free to love and serve Christ and sacrifice for the purpose of the gospel and the sake of their brothers and sisters. That is a picture of what it means to be a gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded church that plants churches, that transforms communities. Now, let me end with this. Francis Schaeffer, he said, our greatest danger to the mission of God, the greatest danger to cultivating the soul to reflect the character of Christ, the greatest danger of reaching the nations with the gospel is not liberalism, modernism, postmodernism, or biblical, criti- biblical criticism. The greatest danger is the church doing the work of God and the power of the flesh. Oz Guinness, in an interview, he said that we know everything about parking lot theory, the color that your tie has to be, and all the sorts of things that grow perfect churches. The church could go on operationally for 50 years if the Holy Spirit withdrew his presence because everything that we do is on this side of the ceiling. It's all worldly operational procedures. He's given us a vision. He's given us a mission. And here's the honest reality. Don't don't be fooled. This is the honest reality that we have to live with and deal with. We can build a crowd. We can gather a crowd. We can establish an organization. We can actually build an entity without any help from the Holy Spirit. We have the means and the methods to grow things. If we want something to grow, we just market well. If we want something to grow, we just publicize it well. We can build a crowd without the help of the Holy Spirit. But do we feel like, are we compelled, are we driven by the reality of the gospel and the mission of God to fast and pray for the churches to grow? Are we driven by the mission of God and our need and dependence for God to fast and pray that we impact the city? Or do we just think we've got to market well, do things well? Will we, will we settle for the promise of God without the presence of God. It's entirely possible to carry out all of the trappings of church, all of the trappings that this culture says church is made up of, all the things that we're supposed to do, all the programs and all the needs. It's entirely possible to do all of those things and look successful, to actually be called successful in the eyes of other churches and of the church community. And in the end, when it's all said and done, on the backside of eternity, when the autopsy of Redemption Hill and other churches are, are done. It's entirely possible to look at the end and see that the Holy Spirit was never around. That the Holy Spirit was never actually present. Listen, if you don't take anything home, take this. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel may be the attempt of the church to do the work of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. Let me end with this, Exodus chapter 33. I don't know if it's going to come up there for you. God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He's rescued them, scripture says, by his outstretched arm. He's delivered them through the Red Sea, and they've watched their enemies collapse under the weight of that water crushing back upon them. God is taking them to the place that he has promised them. God has drawn them to himself. God has given them a leader in Moses. 
God is now bringing them to, bringing them to the place where he's going to give them his, his law, where he's going to show them how they're to live. He's going to show them who he is and who they are to be. And you get to Exodus chapter 33. And the Lord says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Hivizzites and the Jebusites. And you will go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what God says, listen to this. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 15. And Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, and I and your people from every other tribe on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, please, Lord, show me your glory. If God's call on our lives, God's purpose for our lives, God's plan for his church is for us to spend our lives making much of him, to exist, to do all that we are called to do with every breath that we take for his glory, cultivating disciples, cultivating peoples who, people whose hearts are being transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ and not simply to create entities and programs and organizations we have to realize that we can't do it on our own. We have to realize that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot depend upon our own ingenuity and our own power and our own creativity. We will do that to our own detriment. If we are going to take the gospel to live as ambassadors and servants in this city and see the darkness in this city transformed by the good news of Christ, to see people brought to the knowledge of Christ, to see people baptized and brought to the community, to see new communities planted in areas that need to know who Jesus is and be changed by his good news, we must be desperate and dependent upon the power of the Spirit of God. We cannot find ourselves pursuing the mission of God completely devoid and separated from the power of God. The greatest hindrance, Schaefer said, to the church fulfilling the mission that God has given it is doing the power and the ministry of God separated from the power of God and doing it in the power of the flesh. We have to see our inability. We have to see our own incompetence. We have to see our own need and the, that need has to drive us to a dependence. It has to drive us in desperation to a dependence upon God to where we cry out with Moses, give me the promise, that's fine. The promise is fine. Go there, I gave you that land, God said. Take the people there, but I'm not gonna go with you. We've got to get to a place where we say we do not want the promise of God without the presence of God. We've got to get to a place where we see our own need and dependence upon God to do what he's called us to do and that we desperately cry out for his presence that we can say with Moses, ah, I'm not going to go if you won't go with us. We need you. How can I do what you have called us to do if you do not go with us? And the first thing that we have got to do, we've got to do, is to cultivate a dependence upon the spirit of God. 
We have to be a people desperate for the Spirit of God and the power of God. Do, let me ask you this. It won't come up on the screen. Do you actually believe that we can accomplish more in the next 10 years with God's power than we could in the next 100 years without it? I mean, do you actually believe that? What good would it do to go after all these things, build all these things, and do all these things if God's not with us in it? What, what good is that? What good is trying to obtain the promises of God if we don't get him, if we don't get his presence? God made us a people who need to refuse to be dependent upon ourselves and who live with a passion for his spirit and his glory. My prayer this morning is that God make us that people that we could go and fulfill his purpose for his people in this place in the time that he's given us. Let me pray for us. Father, my prayer is uh, very simple. My prayer is that you make me and you make all of us and you make your church in this city. It extends way beyond these four walls. But you make your church in this city to be a people who refuse to be dependent upon ourselves and who live with a passion for your spirit and for your glory. That's my prayer. Lord, we accept your mission Lord, we will purpose ourselves to be about cultivating our souls to reflect the character of Christ, to live as ambassadors and a family and servants in this city. But God, we won't, don't want to do that without your presence. And we can't do it without your spirit. So God, show us where we are dependent upon ourselves. Show us where we have made the church and your plans for the church an object of organizational theory and not an exercise in dependence upon your spirit. God, show us where in the rest of our lives we fail to be dependent upon your spirit, Lord, and let us become a people who are characterized by desperation. Desperate for you, desperate for your presence, and desperate for your power. Let us not go 5, 10, 15 years trying to do the work of the ministry and the power of the flesh. Let us not try to live our lives and love our families and love others in the power that we can generate inside of ourselves, but to lean into you in the power of your spirit, let us be dependent upon you in that. Make us a dependent people, a desperate people. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who gave himself for us that we could be filled by your spirit, empowered by your spirit to be your church, your reflection in this city. May you receive all glory and honor. Amen.